Well, hey, good morning, everyone, again. I want to welcome everyone who's joining us from one of our four other campuses, or if you're joining us online, my name is Levi, and I serve as the campus pastor here in Greece, and we get to wrap up week 12 of our series called Faithful. We've been answering the question, how do we live a life of faith? And as I was preparing for this sermon this week and last week, I got to tell you, it was a little challenging. I don't know, uh, like when I, when I prepare a sermon, uh, when I read the text, before I ever preach it to you, I want to preach it to myself. <laughs> I want it to like internalize into my heart and into my soul. And, and I want to speak out of a place of transformation where God has done a work in me before he ever does a work through me. And, and I wrestled with the text today, and as I was wrestling with the text in my office, I looked outside the window, and it was downpouring rain. It was like coming down in buckets. And my first thought was, wow, we really need the rain. I don't know what it's like for you down in the southern tier, but up here in Rochester in Greece, it's been a it's been a dry summer, hasn't it? I mean, it's been very dry, very hot. My grass, my lawn was like burnt to a crisp almost the whole summer. I think I mowed my lawn like three times. And um, as I was thinking about my lawn and the dry deadness and brown, and, and as I was thinking about that, and I was thinking about the text today and answering the question, how is it that we live a life of faith? The, the, the thought occurred to me, how do we live a life of faith when we go through a dry season? Like in our life, emotionally, spiritually. Like when we just, we're just wore out and we're tired and, and spiritually we're just drained. Maybe it's anxiety, maybe it's depression, maybe, maybe it's, it's loneliness, uh, maybe it's dealing with anger or resentment and bitterness. Maybe Whatever it is, how do we live a life of faith even when we go through that desert of the soul? How do we live a life of faith when we go through valleys. How do we live a life of faith when we're not in a good place? I was having a conversation with someone the other day, just checking in with them, haven't seen them in a little while, and I just said, hey, how's it going? And I, what I expected was kind of that canned, typical response, you know, this response I'm telling you about? Like, you just say, hey, I'm doing good, doing fine, a little busy, a little tired, but I'm doing great, doing fine. I didn't get that response, and I was a little shocked at first. You know, he said to me, he said, you know, Levi, I'm just not in a good place. I'm not doing okay, and I'm just, I'm going through a rough patch right now. And once the shock kind of wore off, I felt this sense of, like, gratitude and appreciation because I was like, thank you so much for being honest and transparent. When sometimes it doesn't feel like you can be honest and transparent, it's good to have that sense of honesty and transparency, and I was just so appreciative to know that he wasn't doing okay. So the question is, what do we do when we're not in a good place? But listen to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5. He says this in verse 45, he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust, meaning even if you're a Christian, you're going to go through highs and lows. You're going to go through mountains and valleys. And it doesn't matter your spiritual condition. You're just going to, there's going to be a season where you just go through it. And you're just going through a bad, bad place. So today we're going to be in James chapter 5. 
starting in verse 13. You can turn there in your own Bibles. You can grab one from the seat in front of you, or you can follow along on the screen. And I think this is, this is the, the question that James is going to be answering today. He's going to answer this. Where do I go when I'm not in a good place? Where do I go when I'm not in a good place? And I just, I just want an encouragement for you guys. If that's you, if you're not in a good place right now, in this season, if you're just not in a good place, I would encourage you to lean in to press into the text and the words that James has. In it. And this is what I, my hope, my prayer for you is this, that, that it would be like water for your soul. It would be a, a, a quenching of the thirst that you have. So let's jump into the text. It says in this in verse 13, Is anyone among you suffering? Is anyone among you in a bad place? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. The first thing that James gets at today is when you're not in a good place, where do you go? You you go to God. Which I I know that kind of sounds like common sense, right? Like we should know that. Like that sounds pretty, pretty basic, right? But here's the reality. The reality is this, that Oftentimes when we're in a bad place, when we're in a season of dryness, in a a season where it feels overwhelming and and there's just a lot of things going on, sometimes the last place we want to go is to God. We don't feel like praying. When when James says, is anyone among you suffering, he should pray, sometimes the last thing we feel like doing in those seasons is praying. Because when we're going through it and we're in a bad place, we're in a bad season and it's painful and it's hard and we experience suffering we oftentimes can assume that it's because of a bad God. Well, God's responsible for this. God's, God's responsible. Bad place equals bad God. But could I encourage you, church, with this thought that maybe the bad place is meant to lead you to a good God. Maybe, maybe on, the, on the other side of your bad situation, there is a good God that's waiting for you to come to him. You know, as a dad, I've got a four-year-old daughter, Selah. She loves to climb things. She loves, she's so active. She loves to, to, to like, um, you know, go on the swing set and playground and climb rocks and hike and all. She's a very active kid. But with all that activity comes a lot of scrapes and cuts and bruises and boo-boos, right? And, and as a dad, I just want you to know, like, I will never, ever, 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 ever get tired of her running into my arms with tears in her eyes saying, Daddy, I fell. Daddy, I've got a scrape. Daddy, I'm hurt. Daddy, there's blood. And I'm not a medical professional, so my, like, my threshold of what I can offer for, for uh, like, medical care is not a whole lot. Like, I can't always make the pain go away, but I can sit with her, and I can hold her. I can tell her it's going to be okay. I can just sit with her in the midst of the pain. But here's the thing. I'm just an imperfect dad, okay? I've got good days and bad days. How much more does your heavenly Father want you to come to him when you're not in a good place? How much more does he, does he have his arms wide open just ready for you to come to him when you're suffering? You know, I think that there's a level of disorientation when Christians, people in the church, that 
when, when, when Christians go through suffering. There's a level of disorientation, and, and I think it, 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 it happens because we hear about the, the peace of God that transcends all understanding. We hear about the joy, right, deep down in our hearts. We, we hear about the, the hope that we have in Christ, and when our experiences don't really line up with peace and joy and hope, it's a little disorienting, isn't it? And it oftentimes leads us with the question of why. Why suffering? Why this? Why pain? Why loss? Why grief? Why death? Why sickness? Why sadness? Why? Why? And the, the, the honest answer that I have, the most honest answer that I have is I don't know. I, I don't always know, and I don't know every single situation of why, and, and there's a little bit of mystery to why there is pain and suffering in the world, but there have been particularly three truths that have helped anchor my heart in the goodness of God, even in the midst of hard times, even in the midst of pain and suffering, even in the midst of trials of various kinds, even in the midst of all the things, like the, the dark night of the soul, there's been some things that have anchored my heart to the goodness of God. Here's the first one. The world is broken. The world's broken. Ever since Genesis 2, when sin entered into the world and Adam and Eve, they ate of the, the fruit of the garden, it, it not only introduced sin, but it introduced sickness and decay and death and suffering and pain. And so sometimes the bad things that we go through are just because the world is broken. The second thing I know to be true is this, that sometimes God allows suffering to produce patience and endurance. Like he's working on us, he's molding us and shaping us, and, and you're all just a piece of work. And God's doing something incredible in your life. And he uses suffering to produce something in you. We learned about that in James 1, the very first week, right? Consider it joy, my brothers, when you face trials of various kinds because we know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and perseverance and endurance so that you'd be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. So God's trying to work something into you. He's trying to work some character into you. He's going to use some painful experiences to do that. And then the last thing I know to be true is this, that some suffering is due to personal sin. Right? Sometimes the valley in which we're walking through is because we got the shovel and we started digging out a trench and we started walking in it. And I know that's not necessarily the most popular thing to say, and, and I get that, but sometimes... We've sowed the seed of sin, and we've reaped a harvest of suffering. We went our own way, and it, that's where it led. These three truths have really anchored my heart in the goodness of God, that when I experience trials of various kinds, when I experience pain and hardship, I can look at these things, and I don't need to uh, attribute them to a bad God. That God is still good, and he is faithful, and he has a proven track record over time. And then James moves his attention from the suffering to the happy, to the content, to the, the person who's doing okay. And you know what he says to him? He doesn't spend a lot of time there. He spends a little bit of time, so we're going to spend a little bit of time there. He just, he just says, you should sing praise. Just sing praise. You're, going through, like, you're, on, you're not in the valley, you're in the mountaintop. Remember who it was that got you to the mountaintop. Remember who it was that got you out of the valley. Remember, God, count his blessings. When things in life are going well, oftentimes we can forget that God was responsible for it. We think we had more to do with it than God actually had to do with it. So when things are going well, we sing. And church, as a, as a worship leader, I love this. 
I lo- like my heart for you is, is, is that, you, that, that there would be this spirit and posture of praise and singing, li- like lively singing in your hearts. That that would be cultivated in your hearts, that you'd sing like no one else is watching. You'd sing because you, you know the goodness of God. And he has given you the joy deep down in your heart. And you know that his mercies are new every morning. And that you couldn't help but sing and sing loudly. You know, you don't have to be particularly good at singing to sing loud. Most of our loud singers are not the best singers. And that's okay. God doesn't care if you're on pitch and on note. He just just cares about your heart. So, when things are going well... You should sing. The thing that he's getting at here is this, that, that suffering should elicit prayer and sufficiency should elicit praise. Okay, Suffering leads to prayer. Sufficiency leads to praise. And then we work our way down to verse 14 where it says, Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. There is, there is a time when we get to a, a point in our suffering or even in sickness where we need to call some people in. Like we just can't do it on our own, so we invite others into it. Specifically, it says to call the elders of the church when you are sick. The, the word here that is translated sick, that James uses for sick, is the word astheneo in the Greek. And it means to, to be sick or to be weak. So in the Gospels, in the stories of Jesus and Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, this word is, is used of someone who is physically ill. Someone who, who is physically ill and needs healing, Jesus heals them physically, sometimes also uh, heals them spiritually. But in the epistles, in Paul's letters, he uses this word a little bit differently. He uses it as a way of saying weak in the faith or weak in conscience or spiritually weak. Like in Romans chapter 14, verse 1, it says, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. So there's this kind of dualistic meaning of this word sick. So sometimes it means you're physically ill. Sometimes it means you're spiritually drained. And whether you're physically ill or you're spiritually drained, James says, call upon the elders to pray for you because you might hit a point in your weakness where you can't pray for yourself that you need to invite others in. So he says, call the elders to pray for you. Uh, that doesn't mean just like tap someone with gray hair. Uh, that doesn't, that's not what James is getting at. In the first century church, um, the elders were the, the, the spiritual leaders, right? So the Bible has established godly leadership in the church. And, and we, uh, today at Crosstown, we have a board of elders that lead us and guide us and teach us and, and serve us and pray for us. And, um, and they do so self-sacrificially. And uh, it, it occurred to me that you can't call on the elders of the church unless you know who the elders of the church are. So I, I, I know some of you might know the elders. Some of you at your other campuses, you might know your elders, specifically the ones at your own campus. Um, but I, I, can I introduce you to the elders of the church? Can I do that? We, we have a group of guys, that, uh, a board of elders that are made up of both staff pastors 
and lay elders as well. And, and so I'm just going to introduce you real quick here. Uh, so in Wellsville, our Wellsville campus, we've got Pastor John Schink. He's the Wellsville campus pastor. And then we've got Ken Lineman, who serves as a lay elder there in Wellsville. Then in Olean, we've got Pastor Eber Kinney, who serves as the campus pastor there. And then we've got Keith Jambuzia, who serves as a lay elder in Olean as well. And then in Arcade, we've got Pastor Stu, who serves as the campus pastor there. We've got Dave Barber, who serves as the lay elder in Arcade. In Shingle House, we've got Pastor Tim Taylor, who serves as the campus pastor. And then we've got Steve Reiner, who serves as a lay elder. And then in Greece, we've got me. And then lastly, we've got Pastor Jeremy, who serves as our lead pastor. These are your elders. And should you need prayer, whether you're sick or whether you're weak in faith or whether whatever you're going through, they would love to pray for you. They would love nothing more than to pray for you. It's one of the highest callings of an elder. So it says to call on the elders. They'll pray with you. And then it mentions this anointing with oil type of thing. Any uh, Young Living essential oils advocates out there? Like, yeah, this might be your new life verse, right? Just get the rollerball and just kind of go to town, right? Um, <laughs> the, the, el- the, the oil, there's a lot of different ways to take the oil in this particular passage. But one of the most common ways, and, and, and as it says, it says, anoint with oil in the name of the Lord. And oftentimes, anointing someone with oil was a way of consecrating them, of setting them apart for the Lord's service. And, and so we take it as a, as a way to say, this is symbolic, right? That, that this is not just necessarily like healing power. Like we're not using magical oil or anything. It's usually just EVOO and you pop it on there. And it's not anything magical that, that, that oil doesn't do the healing. It's God who does the healing. But we, we see it as as symbolic of the Holy Spirit working in the life of a believer. So we do this at Crosstown. We, if you call on the elders to pray for you and anoint you with oil, we'll do it. And you, you know why we do it is because it says so right in the Word of God. So we do that. And it's a privilege and an honor. And any one of the elders would be glad to do that for you. Whether you're spiritually weak or whether you're physically sick, we'd love to do that. Then it says in verse 15, And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he's committed sins, he will be forgiven. So it says a prayer of faith. Isn't that interesting? Like when we pray, we don't want to pray half-hearted prayers. And particularly, this prayer of faith is referring to the the prayer that someone else is praying over the sick person. We don't want to pray half-hearted prayers. We don't want to pray unexpectedly. We want to pray Believing in the power of prayer. Believing in the power of God that he would move and work and heal. Now, the flip side to this is we, don't, we also don't want to treat this like a formula to follow either. Meaning that every single time we call on the elders to pray and every time we anoint with oil in the name of the Lord that they're automatically going to be healed. Has anyone ever prayed for healing and it didn't come? I've, I've literally prayed for someone, anointed them with oil several, several times, and then had to do the funeral. And it's, it's difficult. But we know that this is not a formula to be followed. This isn't, this isn't just a, a, a insert the prayer, press the button, and out pops the miracle. God is not a vending machine. 
God is a sovereign Lord with a sovereign plan. And sometimes we don't always understand that plan. We don't understand his will sometimes. And when the, when the healing doesn't come instantly and the fog isn't lifted instantly, we want that to cultivate in us, one, a, a sense of, of, of acknowledgement of God's faithfulness, even in waiting, even when it's hard, even in the, the not yet, but also a persistence in prayer where we would keep knocking. We would keep knocking on that door and say, God, please, God, please. And we would keep going to him in prayer. Then it says, if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Meaning this, that there are some, uh, 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 there's some sickness that is due to sin in our lives. Not all of it, right? Not, not all sniffles are, are sin, right? Don't, don't like hand someone a box of tissues and say, repent in the name of the Lord. Right, that's not necessarily the case. Um, but sometimes there is this connection between the spiritual and the physical. You know, like, isn't, it's miraculous how God has designed us, right? God designed us with body, soul, and spirit. And they're not like just these compartmentalized pieces that work separately, but they're also, they're interwoven and they actually affect one another. Do you know that? Listen to what King David says in Psalm chapter 32, verses 3 and 4. He, now, now, King David is someone who struggled with personal sin, secret sin that was unconfessed. Uh, a lot of you guys know the story of David and Bathsheba and how he committed adultery and then he, he murdered her, hus- her husband, right? Like, it was bad, right? And he kept it to himself. And this is what he says, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Then it says this word, Selah, which is not just my daughter's name. It's, it's a word that's found throughout the Psalms, and, and a lot of scholars believe that it means to, to stop, to pause, to reflect, to consider, to go back, just, 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 to, just to take a moment to really sink in. Kyler, could we go back to verse 3 for a second? Let's read it again. For when I kept silent, my, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. Then the next verse, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. There is this connection that David is making between the sin in his life when he kept silent about it and the aching in his bones and his strength being dried up and a loss of sleep. Now that's what the Bible says. The Bible says there's a direct connection between when we we hold some things in and we're not always honest with where we're at, that it affects us physically. Did you know that science says the same thing? Every now and then science actually catches up with the Bible it actually says what the Bible has already said. And I think when that happens, we should take a look at it. We should pay attention, right? So uh, listen to what uh, David Eagleman, this is a different David, not King David, another David. He's a neuroscientist. This is what he said. You have competing populations in your brain. One part that wants to tell something and one part that doesn't. So keeping certain behaviors secret, especially behaviors that is seen or understood as, now remember he's in the scientific community, he just uses wrong in quotations, as wrong means continual struggle within yourself. 
The internal dissonance and lack of sense of personal integrity is draining. The struggle involved in keeping a secret is stressful. This means that your brain will register the fact that there are increased levels of stress hormones going through your bloodstream as a result of this struggle to keep your secret. In case you didn't know, your brain does not enjoy this stress. (laughs) Those living duplicitous lives live with the stress of keeping a whole section of their lives secret from the people they see every day and care about. And lastly, it says the fact that their brains are marinated in stress hormones due to keeping this secret over and above the effects of the wrongdoing themselves can cause an impairment in the person's ability to stay healthy and function well. So King David is saying, when I kept quiet about my sin, it actually, I felt it in my bones. My strength was dried up. And David Eagleman says, when you keep a secret to yourself, you keep secret sin, there's an impairment in the person's ability to stay healthy and function well. The spiritual can affect the physical Maybe I could put it this way, church. You see this water bottle? How much do you think this water bottle weighs? Answers? Anyone? 1.1 pounds. Anyone? Guess. Just guess. Three ounces? No. (laughs) 16.9 ounces. Here's the reality, right? It doesn't matter how heavy this water bottle is. You know what matters? How long I hold on to it. See, if I hold on to this water bottle for five minutes, just like this, I think I'll be all right. I mean, I don't lift weights or anything anymore, so I don't know. We'll see. But if I hold on to this thing all day long, eventually my arm is going to give out. I'm not going to be able to hold on to it any longer. Look, secret sin works the same way. And it doesn't matter how heavy the sin is. It doesn't matter how big it was. If you hold on to it long enough, it will eat at your bones. Which is why James says in the very next verse, he says this, Therefore, so in light of all this, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power. As where He's saying, confess it. Take what was done in the darkness and bring it into the light. Take that weight that you're holding on to so tightly, the thing you've been struggling with and struggling with, and you just, just let it go. Let it go. You don't need to bear the weight alone anymore. Because when you're not in a good place, you know where you need to go? You need to go to the church. And I don't just mean a building with a steeple on it or a service. I mean, you have to go to the people, your brothers and sisters in Christ who are living this thing out day after day after day right alongside you to remind you that you're not alone, that you can be honest. You can have some people in your life where it's okay to be transparent. It's okay to let down the mask. It's okay to not be okay. Now, does that mean you, you air out all of, your, all of your junk to every single person you meet? No, not necessarily. 
that's probably not the best idea because not everyone can hold on to it. Not everyone knows what to do with all that. So it's not to say that you've got to just confess your sins and air out all your dirty laundry to every single person. But you should have one or two people in your life, church, like, like that, that you can be honest with. You can be straightforward with. And whether, whether that's because of sin or whether it's just because you're going through a hard time and you, and you just need a moment to be weak and you don't need to pretend to be strong. You know, as I was talking about this, fleshing this out earlier before the service, I made this connection that, like, it's one thing to confess your sins to God, and that's beautiful, and that's a good thing. But when you confess your sins to one another, and you, you, you actually get transparent and honest with someone, they get the opportunity to affirm what God has already said. They get to extend the forgiveness. See, we hold on to the promise that God, when we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But if you do that one-on-one with just God, it's just between you and God. But when you, when you confess it and you get it out into the open, you're giving someone an opportunity to declare that forgiveness for you too. And it affirms it and it solidifies into your mind and into your heart. And it's a beautiful thing. Listen to what uh, Barclay says about this. William Barclay says, in, in a very real sense, it's easier to confess sins to God than to confess them to men, right? It's easier to just do the one-on-one thing in, in a corner, maybe not even out loud. You just do it in your mind. And you just say, God, I screwed up. I messed up. It's easier to do that than to do it with men, and yet in sin, there are two barriers to be removed. The barrier it sets up between us and God and the barrier it sets up between us and our fellow man. If both of these barriers are to, be, are to be removed, both kinds of confession must be made. You, you hear at church, like, like there's a barrier. When, when someone is, is slipping into sin, someone is isolating, someone is not in a good place, they tend to, to draw away from community and relationships are impacted. In order for that barrier to be removed, there needs to be both kinds of confession. And then he moves on. James gets down and talks about Elijah. He uses Elijah as a case study. Let's, let's read on. He says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. He says that Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Which, if, does anyone ever heard of Elijah? Raise your hand if you've heard of Elijah. Right, so Elijah was one of the great prophets in the Old Testament. And if, we don't have time to get into everything today, but if you were to, Go back, write down 1 Kings 17 through 19. You'll read all about the story of Elijah. Or Elijah. And Elijah was a man that had great power demonstrated through him. Great miracles, signs, miraculous things were done through the prophet Elijah. And he prayed in a, in a, a drought for, for three and a half years. And, and, then, and then God fed him with birds. Birds came and fed him. And, and then he, he resurrected a kid from the dead. And, and then as a showdown, uh, for, the, for the, it's the prophets of Baal, he challenges them and he calls down fire from heaven and it burns up the sacrifice. You'd think that this man would have a supernatural kind of faith, an untouchable faith where he's seen God's power flow through him in miraculous ways. But James says he's a man with a nature like ours. It might be hard to believe and you're thinking, how is he a man with a nature like ours? He resurrected the dead. He called fire down from heaven. Like, how is he a man with a nature like ours? Well, if you were to read in 1 Kings 19, Queen Jezebel puts a bounty on his head, wants to kill him. 
And you'd think that Elijah would respond in faith and say, ah, it doesn't matter, I don't care about her, don't care about her. What does he do? He runs for his life. He runs scared. And he even gets to the, the dark valley of the soul. He gets to a place where he's not okay and he's not in a good place. And you know what he does? He prays that God would take his life. Talk about a man with a nature like ours. He's asking you to consider Elijah because he's asking you to consider the power of prayer. If I could say it this way, there is power in prayer even when you're praying from a place of weakness. Even when you pray with a, from, from a place where you're a man with a, with, a, with a nature like ours, when you're not in a good place, church, because we believe in the power of God. James wraps up this letter, very last two verses, by uh, having a word to the people who might not be in a bad place, but they're actually in a good place. Listen to what he says here, verse 19. My brothers, if any among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. He says there's going to be some people in the church who wander from the truth, wander from the faith. It makes me think of that, uh, that old hymn, you know the hymn that I'm talking about? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Or the verse that says, all we like sheep have gone astray. There are people in our church, in our campuses that are wandering away. And James says, Hey, if that's not you, if you're not the wanderer, if you're okay, if you're doing all right, essentially what he's saying is this. If you're in a good place, go to the people who are not. Right? You don't have to be in a dark night of your soul. I get it. Right? I don't want to be all doom and gloom. So if that's you, if you're doing okay, maybe the fact that you're doing okay isn't just for you. Maybe it's for those around you, too, that you would have an awareness about the people who are getting quiet, the people who are withdrawing, the people who maybe are drifting away a little bit. When it says that, that, that they've, uh, they, they've wandered away from the truth, he's not just talking about a theological truth. He's not just talking about this, like an idea. He's talking about wandering away from a way of life. Though you're living into the truth. So if you see someone who's not where they should be, now you don't like wring their neck and you don't just like shake them or anything like that. It's not, that's not the point. But lovingly, you come alongside of them. And, and you just take notice. Take notice of the people and bring them back into the fold. We don't want anyone to fall through the cracks and we know that as the church gets bigger and, and, and you know, as a bigger crosstown family, we, we are a little bit of a bigger church, and, and people do fall through the cracks. I hear it all the time. Sometimes people say, well, I, you know, I, I just kind of wandered away, and I didn't get the phone call. I wandered away, and no one took notice, and I wandered away. And I, I, you know, I'd love to give you guys a really uh, practical way that you can live out this text 
even today. And when I think of the, the place where this is really lived out, where, where you can go to God, you can go to the church when you're not in a good place, and if you are in a good place, you can actually gather and, and, and help someone else along who's wandering away. I think of small groups. Like, like right here this morning, Sunday morning, I love what happens on Sunday morning, but this is a big group. This is a large group. And, and there's only so much, like we don't believe that this is the end-all be-all to all that is church. Right? Amen? Like this isn't it. This is not it. Right? Like a, a high five and a handshake and, and a sermon is just not enough. It's not what it means to really live out being the church. We believe that we're brothers and sisters in Christ and, and we're going to do life together because you're not alone. You don't need to do it alone. And that's good news, church, because you can't do it alone. And so we love the fact that we have small groups. And I would just encourage you, beg you, implore you to join a small group. We have small group signups right now that are available for you to sign up. We're going to start the fall semester off really soon here in just a, just a couple weeks. And if, if you haven't ever joined a group or you don't know what groups are all about, Ask someone, tap someone on the shoulder who you know is involved in a small group, and they'll tell you. And I, I, If you really want someone in our campus, go talk to Bob. Bob will tell you all about small groups. He loves small groups. I love small groups. And it's, it's a way to live out the, the life of the church. And if you're in a place where you're not okay, someone's going to notice, and they're going to love on you. You know, there's, there's a lot of different aspects of small groups. There's what we, we spend time in the Word together. We, sp- we spend time fellowshipping and, and, and really getting to know one another. Uh, and, and, and then we, we also pray for one another. And I'll, and I'll tell you, the, the small groups that I remember the most with the most clarity of saying, this was meaningful. Like when I look back at it, I'm like, man, this was good. It was when someone came to small group and they weren't in a good place. They probably didn't even feel like coming to small group. But they came anyway. And they got real and they got honest and they said, you know what, I'm not in a good place. I'm overwhelmed. I'm anxious. I'm tired. I'm stressed out. I'm, I feel lonely. And we throw out the curriculum for the day and we gather around that person and we pray for them. We lift them up and we encourage them and we follow up with them. It's, it's days like that where I walk away going, we were the church tonight. We were the church. And I look back at those moments with great clarity because those were the most meaningful and significant moments of small group. Those things can happen on Sunday morning, but they happen a lot more in small groups. So I would encourage you, join a group. We've got sign-ups right out back if you'd like to sign up that way, or you could sign up online as well. I want to invite the worship teams up as we close out our time. Lord, thank you so much that you are a good dad. That you want, like you desire when we're, when we're hurt and we're struggling and we're anxious and we're, we're lonely, you desire us to draw near to you. And God, our suffering and our pain and our hurt, it's not wasted on you. And God, I'm reminded that you're a God who empathizes and sympathizes with us because you've endured suffering. You endured pain. You endured loss. And you endured hardship. 
So God, I, I, I pray that we would, just, we would just draw near to you in our times of need. And when we can't, Lord, we would call upon others and invite them in to what we're experiencing. God, I pray for the wandering soul in our church. I pray for the one who's wandering away, who doesn't maybe feel connected or, or doesn't, doesn't feel quite right or they're you know, over, being overcome by temptation and sin or, or whatever it is, Lord. I pray for that person right now that they'd get connected. They would be known by the church and loved by the church and, and held accountable by the church. There'd be a sense of unity and, and, and intimacy in the church. And Lord, I pray for our small group semester. As we get into it, it would be just like deep, deep roots being, being formed with, with people in the church and, 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 and just growing closer in our walk of faith with you um, and, and just sweet times of prayer and fellowship. Lord, I, pr- I just pray that over our small group. I pray that multiple people would sign up. Our small groups would be filled and it would be just an expression of your goodness and grace. So, Lord, we love you and we praise you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.